Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome again to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. And today I've got a really, uh, really interesting guest. Um, he's the president and CEO of Rocks Gold who are a Canadian-based gold mining company with their assets located in West Africa. Um, I'll let John explain a little bit more about the company and the journey that they're on um, and what the f- future holds for them. So I'd like to welcome John Dorwood. How are you doing, John? I'm very well, Rob. Nice to be uh, talking to you. Yes, and yourself. And obviously, I'm, I'm in, um, in the UK and you're, uh, you're company in Melbourne at the moment. Um, and I that's imagine right. that's, uh, it's going through the, the winter there now, I believe. Yes, it's it's winter down here, but when I talk about winter to my to Canadian colleagues, they they don't really sort of credit it as much of a winter, to be honest. Yeah, no, I understand that, and uh, and obviously the time of this recording here in the UK, um, apparently it's going to be one of the hottest days um, on record. So um, well, yeah, we've got one extreme to the to the next. Just make sure you keep your fluids up, then. Yeah, certainly. So I used to live in Australia, so uh, I'm used I'm I'm used to the heat. And and know what precautions to take. So um, yeah. So I want, I want to kick this off by um, giving a little bit of an overview of your of your career. So from when you um, graduated and how you moved through the industry. Um, and obviously you're originally from Australia, and you're obviously working for a Canadian company now. So yeah, just want to go through your career, and then before we get on talking about Rocks Gold. Um, and everything about the company. So, um, yeah, far away. Sure, Rob. Um, so, a Melbourne boy. So, I grew up here in Melbourne. Uh, did my senior sort of high school in Melbourne. Then I went to the University of Melbourne, where I studied a commerce degree. So, I have a have a finance background. After finishing university, I went into the banking sector for uh, for my sins, and and sort of quickly moved into, I guess, the project finance area with a particular focus on resource lending. So, I sort of started with, um, was a, an offshoot of the Bank of Scotland in Perth. And we uh, we did quite a few, were quite active in lending, mainly to junior mining companies sort of coming to, to, to build their first projects. So I got a sort of an early taste for uh, for the industry and, and sort of taking a, a greenfield site and, you know, our customers or, you know, borrowers were, were building the, the projects and got to see that sort of that life cycle of the industry. So after a few years doing that, I, I decided that I'd sort of um, swap teams and uh, make an honest living for a change. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, went into, I went into industry yeah. and I joined a, a company called MPI Mines, which was back in Melbourne. So I joined Mel- uh, back, back, came back to Melbourne to join MPI in a sort of a commercial and finance role. Uh, we had just, just IPO'd on the ASX uh, in the early 2000s and, and it was actually a good time. It was really, it was a nickel and gold producer. And after, you know, sort of toiling through many years of, of, of low commodity prices, the, the cycle really started to turn there at the, at the start of the, 
the 2000s and, and MPI took off and we actually ended up being the IPO of the year, I think in 2002, if memory serves me correctly. And, and then quickly thereafter, we were acquired by Lion Ore, a Canadian company, um, for our nickel assets, which subsequently got taken over by uh, Norilsk. So it was an exciting time. Um, and we, we ended up spinning off our gold assets, and that was the, the Stall Gold Mine and the Coolgardie Gold Mine. And uh, we worked away at that and did a bunch of exploration and kept producing gold and eventually merged with a, a company called uh, Perseverance, which at the time owned the Fosterville Gold Mine. Uh, now, the Fosterville Gold Mine has gone on to... Uh, to fame and fortune with with some fantastic discoveries and none of which we actually foresaw to be honest so we okay. uh, we thought that we were didn't didn't know that uh, the, the quality of the mine that we were sort of merging with but you know that's all that's all sort of history now and after that I uh, I went to a company called mineral deposits um, also based in Melbourne as uh, as, the, as the CFO and we uh, developed the Sabadala gold mine in Senegal in West Africa uh, which was a you know a very good project and and ultimately I guess that was my first taste of working and developing gold projects in West Africa uh, and sort of struck a chord for me. I, I sort of in, I enjoyed the uh, the challenge and I enjoyed the ability that and, and we can sure we'll talk a little bit about it the the, the 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 way that you can actually move your projects forward in a very quick fashion in West Africa where yeah. the countries are, are really keen mm. to see that foreign investment. And, and move things along. So that was a, that was a good experience. Uh, after we built the Sabadala Gold Project, I joined a company called Frontier Gold. Um, I was in Canada at the time, and Frontier was, was based in Vancouver. It was a development company with several development projects, really high-quality projects, really well-run company. I learned a lot there. Um, I learned a lot about the, the North American capital markets and how to position and promote your projects to investors. And ultimately, we were taken over by Newmont, Okay, in, yep. uh, in 2011 for the Long Canyon project. And, and that really marked, I guess, a, a high point in the market. The acquisition was uh, a little over $2 billion. And uh, just a really, you know, it was, a, it was a sort of a quick experience. It was less than two years, but, you know, quite, uh, quite, uh, quite enjoyable. And, and, then, uh, and then ultimately that led me to, to Ropsgold. Yeah. Um, just obviously explaining your uh, career, how did you find the transition from working in the finance and banking industry, then moving to, a, to a, obviously a mining, a mining company? How did you find that transition and how did you, I suppose, what cultural differences were there working in that sector and moving over to the mining sector? Look, I mean, they, they were very different and I certainly enjoyed my time um, with the bank when I was in Perth. We had a great team there and I really enjoyed working with the group and, and we learned a lot. And I guess it, it, it is, whilst you still have a long, you can have a long relationship with your, your customers, it's, it is largely a transactional business. Yeah. Um, you, you're coming to provide capital and, you know, one person's capital is, is the same as someone else's. So, you know, you're competing on price and service and deliverability and, and, and things like that. And we built some very strong relationships with our clients. Um, I think making the transition to to the mining company to, to MPI at the time, I found quite uh, I found it quite exciting. I found it I found the actual the, the, the breadth of the job was was a lot broader, and yeah. there was a, there was sort of a lot more to do. And you know there were some tasks that I um, that I had that, that that I wouldn't have envisaged having when I was at the at the bank. I you know right from you know doing some of the more probably the more mundane tasks such as uh, 
you know, renewing the insurance every year and things like that, which I didn't really get a great thrill out of, but, you yeah. know, it has to be done. Right through to, you know, the sort of the, the corporate development, you know, mergers and acquisitions being, you know, negotiating the takeover and things like that. So it was really a, a broader a broader palette of activities. Yeah. You got to see things really from cradle to grave. So you sort of could see the ideas start to generate and, and put a plan in place and how you deliver it, then you'd actually get to deliver it or work with the team to deliver it and, and then see the results. And I, I enjoyed that. And I think that was, it's certainly been a, a, a great move for me. And, you know, I often talk to people, you know, people in the finance industry who I know will, will often talk to me about that move. And, you know, for me, it's been, uh, it's been, it's been great. Yeah. Um, Would you, um, if you, if you turn the clocks back, and you, when you decided to obviously go to university, would you say that you went down the right route, or would you say that you might have now thought about studying a mine engineering degree or something related to the mining industry, or were you uh, quite happy a, with that's that? That's a good route? question. Yeah, no, I've, I've often thought about that. I, I mean, the degree I did was was quite broad, and you know, I, I, and I've done subsequent study after after university, but. But I think if I did have my time again, I would I would be quite interested probably in um, I'd probably look at geology because okay, I've, I've yeah. always found the uh, you know I've always been sort of had, had good friends who are geologists. Not that I don't have good friends who are mining engineers and metallurgists as well, but I think the geology probably would have appealed to me the most. And and sometimes I I wonder that if I ever get put out of work again that maybe I should uh, go and do a little bit of geology maybe just enough to be dangerous and, <laughs> and enough to be even more annoying than I am with my geologists uh, currently yeah and I suppose you, you'll see it from their point of view if you did I suppose do a little bit of studying and and um, and obviously understand from where they're coming from and maybe even go out in the field for for a period of time and then I suppose you can then balance some arguments that you may have with them um so um, no that no, was interesting interesting to hear and i was as you were speaking i was thinking i was thinking that question as to um if you had your time again would you go down a different route i think i think some of some of the geologists that i've met there's no way that i'd ever be able to understand where they're coming from <laughs> okay. no matter how much how much study i did but but uh but i think yeah, i think it would be i think having some of that and you pick things up obviously on the technical front you know i think you try and develop a bit of a filter for assessing what you're being told and when you're looking at you know especially if you're looking at potential investments for the company to make you you know I've, i have looked at a lot of projects and i think you know you develop a little bit of a filter for for what makes sense and and, and whilst you might not be able to go and and get on the tools and you know estimate the resource or you know do the mine scheduling myself i, I think you can sort of build up a a, a, a sort of a level of experience and that you can sort of test the the thesis of what you're being told, and and that comes with a bit of experience. And you know, also I've done you know a little bit of I've, I've dabbled in some some mining top mining subjects as well uh, at the at the School of Mines in WA. So you know, uh, enough to be enough to get myself into trouble, and enough to sort of frustrate some of my colleagues. I think. Yeah, no, as I understand that. Um, Okay, so now I want to move on to obviously um, Rocks Gold. Um, you've been there since 2012. Um, so how's your journey been so far since joining them? Look, it's been it's certainly been interesting. Um, I came to Rocks Gold in a rather unorthodox fashion um, through a through a proxy contest. Um, we so so Rocks Gold under previous management had had made a fantastic discovery 
in Burkina Faso uh, at Yaramoko, the 55 zone. Um, yep. The 55 zone so named after the 55th drill hole. So it wasn't, you know, sort of title, imaginative titles and yeah. names weren't, weren't sort of high on the list of priorities. But there we are. And, and that and that discovery was very high grade and, and, and very exciting at the time. And, and the stock had a very, had a pretty wild run. And then, you know, for a variety of reasons, um, some of the shareholders, one of whom in particular, um, Oliver Lennox King, who's, who's the chairman of Roxgold now and who was the chairman of Frontier and, and I'd, I'd known for a number of years, initiated the proxy contest because he and some of the other share, large shareholders felt that they, they, they were uncomfortable with the direction of the company. Um, anyway, you know, a lot of water under the bridge, initiated a proxy contest, were ultimately successful uh, in 2012 from September and prevailed, and and I'd come across, I'd come back from Melbourne uh, after returning to Melbourne from Vancouver with Frontier, yeah. uh, and I came across really to be to, to give him a bit of a hand and, and really be the interim CEO, so that if his slate was successful in their their proxy contest, that uh, they'd have someone to to take the keys essentially. Um, so that that happened. Um, we we had a small team who'd helped him with the. Um, the, the contest, uh, Ben Pullinger was our original VP exploration and he was one of the key drivers. He'd really sort of got Oliver onto the, the opportunity at Roxgold. So uh, he and I sort of took it on board and, and were quickly joined by Paul Criddle as our COO yep. and, and, and really sort of, you know, took the project through the initial preliminary economic assessments, through feasibility study, permitting, financing and, and ultimately into production in 2016. Yep. And so how are the projects going in, in both uh, Burkina Faso and obviously I think you're doing some exploration stuff in uh, Cultivar. That's right. Yes. So, so we actually made our first acquisition. Uh, we acquired the Seguela project from, from Newcrest uh, in Cote d'Ivoire. Yep. And, and we've been operating the Yaramoko gold mine now for, we just had our three-year anniversary. And, and look, it's a, Congratulations. It's a standout project. Thank you very much. So it's, it's a, it really is a standout project. There's a, for a junior company looking to to bring its first project into production, you really couldn't ask for a a better project than Yaramoko. You know, high grade. It's uh, very quite straightforward on a technical front. It's got great metallurgy. I mean, we we get anywhere from ninety eight to ninety nine percent recoveries. So probably That's some good. of the highest recoveries you'll see at any gold mine in the world. Yep. Um, it's uh, it, the geology is well behaved, and and it's sort of and, and it was relatively. Modest capex. We we spent just over just on 110 million dollars to bring it into production, and uh, we just put out our new reserves and resources uh, a week ago, and and we've been able to ma maintain the mine life around seven years, which is what we started with in the feasibility study. So look, really, just a, a real powerhouse of a mine, a mine that really punches above its weight. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, it's never been a big resource. I think it will continue to grow over time, and it and it's not. The world's largest producer, but you know, really strong cash flow generator. And what that's allowed us to do is really build a, a really strong balance sheet and and make our first acquisition at Seguela. We were able to pay cash from yeah. from earnings that we'd made at Yaramoko, and we didn't have to dilute our shareholders. So you know, really, the company is is in the best shape it's ever been in. It's got a it's got a really strong cash engine, beating away at Yaramoko, and we've just been able to sort of show our first you know, acquisition and which really sort of, I think, underpins where we're trying to take the company going forward.
Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly there's some impressive figures that you've just mentioned. Uh, what challenges have has the company faced in both jurisdictions, and I suppose more so in Burkina Faso, because obviously it's in operation. What do you say some of the main challenges that you have faced? Um, mainly around sort of, I guess, some of what people might identify as, as some of the sort of the classic West, West African challenges, and that's really on sort of political stability. I think I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of set the scene and, and give a bit of background to that. I think, as, as, as an opening comment, though, um, it, it's, it's worth it's worth noting that uh, Yaramoko, the 55 zone, was discovered in 2011, and it was in production in 2016. Okay. So yeah. five years from from discovery hold to production is really unparalleled in in pretty much any other jurisdiction, yep. other than a select group of probably West African countries. So whilst Whilst I might sort of you know talk about some of the challenges we've faced, I think it's worth noting that that it still happened within a very very quick period, and 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 it is a genuinely very mining friendly jurisdiction. You know, I think number one on the the challenge front for us was really the uh, the replacement of the of the president President uh, Blaise Compaoré. So so Blaise Compaoré had been in power nearly thirty years. Yeah, and he had. I think had grown accustomed to being president and enjoyed being president of Burkina Faso. Uh, but unfortunately for him, he bumped up against uh, term limits in the constitution that really were, were designed to prevent him from running again. Um, not to be uh, put off by uh, uh, you know, a, a document like the constitution, um, he was fairly determined to actually run again. And he had a displayed you know an uncanny ability to get a lot of the votes in in previous years so it was really looking like he would if he did do that he would be re-elected and and essentially the the, the population of Burkina decided that they weren't going to have uh, have a bar of that really so they they really sort of did a they sort of rose up and, and it wasn't really a violent um, type of uh, arrangement but they basically said look no we're, we're not going to put up with this the police and the army, didn't intervene on behalf of the president of President Kempore. so so they they didn't take up arms against the the general population, and and I think that's probably marked some maturity in Burkina Faso and and you know other in, in the region that you might not have seen ten or twenty years ago. Um, that might have been a very different story. So so ultimately, Blaise Kempore was was seen leaving in a, a long procession of of big black Mercedes S six hundreds for the Cote d'Ivoire border in a cloud of dust and and has has, has, has gone and left the country. Uh, but that was, you know, relatively unsettling, obviously, and, and caused a bit of angst, obviously, within the country and for, for us and for investors. Um, we don't like the uh, using the C word uh, for coup. Yeah. Uh, we we prefer to refer to it as the uh, the unscheduled change of government. Uh, and as as that's what happened and, and basically the the some of the 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 politicians who were left and some of the eminent Burkinabi from from a, who were out maybe sort of in international roles at the UN etc came home and formed a transitional government with the aim of governing the country for 12 months until they could get to elections which they did and I think they did a very good job of that and and that was scheduled for that so so the original change of government was 2014 and then in 2015 they were heading towards elections at the end of the year I think in September of 2015, I was at a conference and, you know, first day of the conference, you know, the first morning, all the meetings were going very well. 
And then in the afternoon, after the news was leaking that the military, some of the military had risen up and were trying to topple the government, the questioning became a, a lot less uh, about how the project was going and more about the country. And, and basically that petered, yeah. out, and that petered out and didn't go anywhere, fortunately. And they actually had their elections in, I think, in November 2015. And um, the new president, uh, Rock Michael Christian Gabore, was elected with a solid margin. Uh, no one questioned the result. And uh, all of his opponents conceded defeat, and, and he's been in power ever since. And you know, I think has done a very good job of of, of steering the company, of steering the country forward. And so I think, you know, all in all, it was an interesting time. But all's well that ends well. And and we've been, you know, we've been very happy working in Burkina Faso. And and I think it's it's definitely a, a country that you can uh, that you can you know explore, develop, and build and operate your gold mine without uh, without too much fuss yeah i mean that's probably going uh, going on to my next question um about obviously corporate social responsibility um and how you've been how how your relationships are with the the government now and obviously local community obviously explain what's happened in the past but how how is your relationships with with the local community and the governments i think we have a very positive um, a very positive relationship. I mean, f- first and foremost, we concentrate on project-affected people. You know, the people in the villages and the communities near the mine who who have potentially, you know, potentially are impacted by our activities. And, you know, we've brought a relatively large commercial industrial undertaking into, into the region. So, so we're very mindful that we become, we are good neighbours and that we have a responsibility to share the wealth, share the benefits, and, and make sure that we have a lasting positive legacy. A, a lot of which is easy to say, and, and then but doesn't actually happen unless you are really, really putting in the effort on the ground. And we have a, we have a great team, particularly speaking of Yaramoko at the stage because we've been going longer there. We have a great team led by um, Julian Bertrand, who's our VP of sustainability. Um, he's had a lot of experience in West Africa and we have a couple of local guys on the team, um, um, Bassery and Philibert, who who really are really well connected with the local with the local leadership in the community, and and basically what we do is maintain, you know, try to minimise our say do gap. So whatever we say, we do, and and we don't come up with excuses. We don't overpromise, and we we try to work on what we can deliver. And every year we have a have a social investment program. That is that's really geared towards, you know, delivering uh, improvements in 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 you know in health, in education, in in economic activity. We have a, a very active procurement program where our catering effort is directed to try and source as much product as we can locally, where we have contracts and, and works to do around the site where we can. We we give preference to local contractors and local entrepreneurs who 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 are assisting. To be able to deliver it, you know, in terms of timeliness and quality that we need, so that's been that's been very good for us. Um, one one issue that we've been working through is with the government is they brought in in two thousand during that interim government in two thousand and fifteen they brought in a new mining code. Uh, we've been grandfathered under the previous mining code in two thousand and three, and we have a fiscal stability agreement. One of the one of the the new things that they brought in with the new code was a one percent social royalty, uh, and they've been you know we've been going backwards and forwards, and you know the government thinks that we we should be paying into that, and we say look, we have a fiscal stability agreement, 
we and we also have a very active uh, program in place at the moment, and, and we would say, look, we would be happy to go with this this new royalty if we were given credit for what we spend, and if there was transparency with the local communities. What we don't want to see is another royalty brought in that, that doesn't actually directly impact the local people. So it's sort of one of those items that we're we're working through. It, it hasn't been resolved as yet, but we're confident that we'll get to a to a um, to a good outcome where we can continue to to make a positive impact on our you know local communities uh while still respecting um which is very important to us still respecting our fiscal arrangements and the and the you know the the tax and royalty regime that we invested significant funds into bikina to make sure that that's respected and the rules don't get changed on us but you know i think it's really all part and parcel of the the rough and tumble of uh, of operating you know anywhere and i mean you could be operating in australia or or, or America and, and have rules changed on you. So it's sort of part and parcel of the of the industry, I think. Yes, certainly. Um, I want to move away just from Rock's Gold for the moment, but I will come back to it. What are your predictions for the gold market moving forward, um, obviously from, from now, uh, uh, over the, I suppose, medium, short to medium term, um, you're probably looking at five or ten years. What would you say... And obviously, you're heavily involved in gold. What would you What would you predict for the gold, the actual gold market, in terms of obviously price um, and other attributes? So, I, I doubt I'm going to be your first guest who's going to forecast a decrease in the gold price. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny. I am. Um, I interviewed the other week uh, someone from um, the World Gold Council, and I asked that question. He gets asked asked that question every single day. So, um, no, I just like to obviously hear your your perspective no so i so i when i went to when i went to, to melbourne uni i did i did economics and i was taught by some some eminent economists and almost uh, every single one of them basically uh was warning me to be very careful when offering predictions they said you could you could give a sort of a, a number or you could give a date but don't give both yeah okay so in, in keeping with that i would say that the i think the the the, the the scene is very well set up for gold. Uh, yeah. There's no question of that, and I think we've seen that with with recent moves in um, with the gold price going through 1400 and, and looking very comfortable going through it. I mean, we've seen over over the last five or six years a, a few dead cat bounces, um, all the way back to I guess the the low point in the summer of the northern summer of 2015. So. It didn't, you know, gold has rallied and not really sustained it. This time it looks a little different, which is encouraging. Yeah. The, you know, the mainstream financial press is is talking a lot more about gold, and I think there's there, there's definitely more interest in it. I think I, I don't know if you saw the the Ray Dalio sort of piece on gold of a, of a week or so ago. I mean, very interesting to see a a very influential hedge fund manager talking very positively about gold. I, I think stepping back, I think we're in terms of the the, the 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 you know various economies around the world, we are in uncharted territories with with sustained super low interest rates, yeah, super high money supply, and I think if you look at a traditional view on gold, it's it's very well set up to to support probably even potentially sort of unheard of levels for gold. I think because we're in such uncharted waters following the the efforts that have been put to work to repair the damage from the the gfc uh that haven't been unwound you've got a lot of a lot of paper a lot of paper currency 
Yeah. Or fiat currency is our is our serious gold bug friends like to refer to it. And I think when that starts to chase gold in a in a, in a meaningful fashion, you'll see gold really start to, to to move higher. So, I don't know where it's going to go, but I think it probably is is very well set up to 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 get to prices we haven't seen before. And I think that's just really on the back of 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 nervousness on the on the broader, you know, financial assets out there. I mean, really, I mean, you know, sort of interest rates are so low, such such long term interest rates at such low levels is really you know, it, it, it's pretty rare, and yeah. I think it's uh, the 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 alternative for gold is is very is very good. Geopolitical as well is also favourable. You know, typically, you know, I don't think that 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 doesn't seem to to lead to really sustained impacts on the gold price. It really is related, to, you know, function of U.S. interest rates, etc. By and large, but but it can't hurt. So we have um, interesting political times. We have very interesting financial times and and i think it's all going to uh to to square off and be ultimately very very positive for gold yeah no certainly and i agree with your um comments there um and it's interesting that uh, there's a few few countries out there that are actually buying more gold reserves um i think china is there's a few eastern european uh, countries that are buying gold um and yeah i i, I agree with you it, it the i think the gold market will pick up no predictions but i think um especially with um the countries printing more and more money um obviously like you mentioned the, the fiscal money yeah, or fis, uh, fiat currency um i think yeah gold is obviously um something that's going to help with with that whole situation so no i i, I do agree with you there um how I looked at or just or just on that. I think you know you go back and go back quite a few years, and, and the the Reserve Bank of Australia sold the majority of its gold holdings, and so that did the UK. Marked, yeah, that marked the low point of the gold price. So, so as long as we don't see the Reserve Bank of Australia buying gold, we should be we should be okay for it to keep going up. Yeah. What? How do you see? Um... The West African mining market developing over the next five or ten years, and obviously you've been been there for for a while now. How what? How do you see that the actual whole West African mining market developing? Look, I mean, it, it, it is interesting. I mean, I think West Africa, you know, West Africa is, you know, relative to a lot of other jurisdictions, underexplored. And you know, I'm lumping the countries of West Africa in, but I'm mainly talking Burkina, Mali, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, and Ghana. Uh, potentially Guinea, and and it they are underexplored. I mean, you've had Cote d'Ivoire, especially, sort of was not accessible for a number of years due to sort of in, instability, and you've got you know some you know some fantastic endowment in of, of mines in Mali and Ghana, some really large mines also in Burkina Faso, and and emerging in Cote d'Ivoire. So the prospectivity of those countries is probably as good, if not better, than pretty much any other jurisdiction. I, I mean, I think, and obviously I'm biased and I talk my own book, uh, or so people say, but but I think that's the prospectivity is excellent. I think allied that to, to my earlier comments that you can actually progress your projects in a very quick fashion in, in these jurisdictions. Uh, there's not a lot of roadblocks and not a lot of red, red or green tape yep. in your way. And I think that really sets up well to, to to reward the effort of people who go or companies that go into it and explore and develop assets so i think i think you know the, the the potential is really unquestioned in my mind 
what is interesting is, you know, a lot of the majors, the major gold companies have sort of wavered, I think, in their their commitment to West Africa. I mean, I think, and that might be that the, some of the really large deposits that you see elsewhere haven't, you know, you know, there haven't been that many of them. There's certainly been a few, but, you know, so I think for a company like us, uh, with the market capitalization and, and the production that we have, it's it's a pretty happy hunting ground. And I think for us, we can continue to find and unearth opportunities like we have at Seguela uh, on a relatively cost-efficient basis, you know, get projects that we can actually move forward in a sensible time frame. I mean, a number of a number of our peer companies that might have projects in North America, I mean, they're, they're just, they're more decade, the, 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 pro program, the process is really measured more in decades than years. And that from a you know, a time value of money perspective really really starts to bite on the returns of, of an expiration dollar. So I think for us, if we can continue to find assets, either discover them ourselves or potentially acquire them and put them into production in a similar time frame to what we were able to do at Yaramoko, then that really puts the, 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 the region by far and away in front of a lot of other jurisdictions that we might otherwise look at. So I think it's I think it's very positive. You know, I think the the, the, the governments have shown um, some restraint in how they deal with their sort of their taxation and royalty structures. Um, I mean, Burkina Faso did introduce a new code, but it, it, it's not still not out of out of bounds. It's not a bad code by any stretch. It still compares quite favourably to a lot of other jurisdictions. It, it just happened to be a, a more favourable one um, back in 2003, which we're, we've had the benefit of. But but I think you know, as, as long as they, as long as the governments understand that the capital is mobile, it has an option. It, it doesn't have to be invested in in West Africa. It's uh, you know, it has to compete for capital from overseas. Then and, and then they keep the ask reasonable. Then there's a very bright future. Yeah. What advice would you give someone who was looking to explore or even set up a company in West Africa, and obviously in the jurisdictions that you're involved in? What what sort of pointers could you give them? Look, I think it's yeah. I mean, it's uh, where do I where do I start? It's uh, I think you know. I mean, part of it's really, I guess, making sure that you set yourself up for success, and and it probably goes back to your earlier question on on CSR. Yeah, I think you know a, a case in point. You have to be respectful, and you have to be you know alive and alert to the the differences in in cultures and and the realities that. A number of the people in the in the areas that you're going into face, and I think artisanal mining uh, is a good example of that. Yeah. Um, you know, at, at Rockskull, we we banned the term illegal mining uh, as a proxy for artisanal mining. Yeah. We don't we don't like that term because I think it sets up the uh, the wrong sort of um, mindset uh, because artisanal mining is is very prevalent in in West Africa, certainly in Burkina Faso. There's you know, various estimates that from time to time there are up to a million people who are involved, you know, either full-time or on a sort of a ad hoc basis in artisanal mining in Burkina. So That's a big figure. Is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get a number, but but it certainly is quite quite extensive, and that's yeah. sort of the supply chain for the industry, for, for artisanal mining, et cetera, as well. So it's really is, it's about as illegal as jaywalking is. So <laughs> right. yeah, so I think that it, it's, not, it's not a healthy mindset to go into, so... And I think what happened is we we had artisanal miners and we continue to have artisanal miners on our sites, and we interact with them. We're, we're we're actually chasing different things. I mean, we're chasing an industrial scale operation, and and they're generally chasing sort of high grade, very very narrow 
deposit, very narrow deposit, you know, all bodies close to surface. So you, the economic interests don't necessarily intersect yeah. that greatly. And I think if you can remember that and, and, and also respect the fact that, you know, for, for a lot of these people, this is a significant uh, source of income for their households. And without it, they would be, could very well struggle. And I think if you put it into perspective like that and, and, and approach it respectfully and, and look to have constructive relationships, then it's, uh, you can have a good outcome. And, and, I mean, it didn't slow us down at all. And, you know, when we got to Yaramoko, there were probably 2,000 people in and around the, the top of the 55 zone, and we've still been able to develop a very successful project and meet all of our time, our milestones, um, um, whilst, you know, not, not having the aggravation that you sometimes see um, other companies have. Yeah. Want to slowly, uh, sorry, wrap this up. Um, what's the sort of Rocks Gold's future looking like, and what challenges are you going to be facing over the coming years? Obviously, mining in West Africa. I think for us, it's probably it's 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 sort of the the the, the challenge of of sensible growth. Yeah. I think with Seguela, what we've built in, what we've bought from Newcrest w was very timely, and I think it's a. It's a very good case study for, for what we try to do and, and, and a good example of what we're, we're trying to achieve. Seguela was a project that was discovered by Newcrest, uh, and Newcrest is the third largest mining, gold mining company in the world, so it has a certain threshold of, of project size that it needs. And notwithstanding the fact that they made this discovery and they really did excellent work on the, on the project and we've be benefited from a really, a really well put together project it wasn't going to make, they just didn't feel it was going to make their size hurdle, which, you know, could be anywhere up to 5 million ounces as a starting point. So it still gives a lot of room for us to move. And we bought the project with a resource of a little over 400,000 ounces. We've just published a, a new 43101 resource last week, which has it at 530,000 ounces. We've done some subsequent drilling, which will add to that. And we're also drilling a, a number of satellite targets that we also think will be successful in coming into the resource inventory. So we'll, we'll do a preliminary economic assessment later this year. And I think you'll see a project that does sort of 80 to 100,000 ounces for eight to 10 years. And when you look at the acquisition price, now we paid $20 million in cash. So we did not dilute a Rocks Gold shareholder by one share to, to acquire this project. We've increased our resource base by 77%. Our measured and indicated resource base by 77% with bringing this new project in. And I think we'll be able to table an economic study that, you know, probably starts to push towards an MPV of $200 million. So we're able to buy a project that was that early enough that we've been able to, I think, still add some value by investing capital in, in, in drilling it out de-risk the project by conducting the economic studies, ultimately permitting it and bring it in production, but being able to daylight potentially in, in, in the first go-round up to $200 million of, of additional value, all of which we did we did without issuing another share. And, and that's very important for us. I mean, we are very closely focused on maintaining our per-share metrics. That's really become our a bit of a touchstone for us. I think a lot of Gold companies have, have sort of made a rod for their own back because their share count balloons out with, with acquisitions and, and things like that. So we've tried to, and, you know, raising capital from the market, you know, on a regular basis. We, we believe we've got an asset that will generate a significant amount of cash. We can deploy that cash into new opportunities uh, without coming back to our shareholders. And I think that 
ultimately, I hope, will be a recipe for, for, for you know, very significant share price gains as the entitlement of a Roxgold shareholder continues to increase year over year because we haven't been watering them down with uh, additional pieces of paper like sprinkling confetti around um, and, and, and sort of diluting them and, and having to haul a whole bunch of new shares up, up the valuation curve as well. Yeah, well, that's a very bright outlook for for Rocks Gold. So, anyone listening, um, obviously take note. Really appreciate your time, John, for taking the time to do this uh, podcast. If our audience wants to uh, get in contact with you, how can they go about doing that? So, I mean, first instance, they can they can have a look at our website and and www.rocksgold.com, and that has our contact details. My email address is is jdorward. J-D-O-R-W-A-R-D at rocksgold.com. So, I look, I would welcome any queries or comments uh, um, from, from any of your audience and happy to uh, happy for a dialogue uh, going forward on, on, uh, on if they want to know a little bit more, more about where Rocksgold's come from or where we're going. Yeah, that's great. And are you on any social media platforms at all? I have, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I have become a bit of a dinosaur as I've got older. <laughs> we have a... We have a LinkedIn page, yeah. um, which I'm not sure how, how useful that is, but anyway, we have one. I do have a I do have a Twitter account, but I I don't think I've ever posted anything because I'm a little terrified of people who put things on Twitter and then get into trouble and lose their jobs. Got so you. I thought I'd, I'd be a little more um, circumspect about that. But email, I'm, I'm I'm reasonably proficient at responding to emails. Yeah, no, that's good. And alternatively, you can contact myself if you want to um, ask John a question and you can email myself at rob at high, uh, mining-international.org. Well, thank you again for listening. hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, I want to uh, encourage all of our listeners to keep sharing and telling your friends about this free podcast, um, obviously through word of mouth, um, getting them to subscribe and sharing the various posts that we advertise um, as you can see today, it provides a wealth of information and content from industry experts like John, um, which can help you grow as a mining professional in terms of your career and also catch up on the latest news in the world of mining. So until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.